Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let's pray together. Lord, it is always a thrill to come together and be able to focus on you, to set everything else aside, and Lord, to realize that you're our maker. You have made us, you have given us the magnificent goal, um, gift of life, and we are so glad that you breathe life into us as your creation. And now, for those of us who know you, to be able to call you our Father, to be your children, and today to worship you together. Lord, we pray that even as we study your word now, that the worship would continue, and that we would worship you, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. all right, you may be seated. When I was studying this passage, to me it is kind of a natural passage to look at going into the new year, 2016, and one thing I think that all of us could agree upon is that just about everybody you know, man, woman, or child, they have a desire for happiness. Everybody wants to be happy, and I don't think that's any kind of surprise to any of us. Um, how we seek that happiness is all over the board. Um, you know how your friends and family and, and even your enemies might seek after happiness. But regardless of all of that, um, we know it's not easily achieved by so many in this world. I think what's probably more interesting than the idea that we all want to be happy is the idea that God actually wants you to be happy. <laughs> this is something that, for some reason, I didn't embrace as a young person. My religious uh, experience as a child was, you're not going anywhere unless you're running faster than the speed of sound. And I was such a busy, young, uh, guilty-conscienced young man inside the religion I grew up in that I didn't realize that God actually cared about my happiness. He actually cares about it in my life. And what's funny is, is that God actually talks in His Word about being happy all the time. You can go through God's word and you can look for the, this word, blessed is the man, or blessed is the one, all through the scriptures. And guess how many times it's mentioned? It's mentioned nearly a hundred times all through the scriptures. And so it's there. And I'm just going to read a few verses, not all of them, but I want to throw them out there before we really get into our passage. Here's a few examples from Deuteronomy. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you a people saved by the Lord. Uh, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, David said, speaking of his own sin in Psalm 32. In Psalm 34, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. 
And every time I say blessed, same word for happy there. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. That's from Psalm 84. And in Psalm 119, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. Proverbs 28. Happy is the man who is always reverent, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. In Isaiah chapter 30, therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will be exalted, and he may have mercy on you, for the Lord is a God of justice, and here it comes, blessed are all those who wait for him. Now, even in Jesus' ministry, he used the same expression, happy is the man, happy is he or she who follows my directions. And just to name a few of what Jesus said, I'm sure you've read Matthew chapter 5 before or heard it, but the Beatitudes there are listed. And every time he says, happy is the man, happy is the man, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So in every place along the scriptures, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, what we see is we see the Lord revealing he actually wants us to be happy. Now, oftentimes people focus on the idea of God doesn't want you to be happy. He just wants you to be sanctified. But the point is, is that real joy and real happiness is possible in a real abundant relationship with Jesus Christ. And God actually wants that. And I guess probably what the real problem is, is that very few people actually follow God's prescription for happiness. So he gives it to us. He gives us the direction. And the question is, do we actually embrace it? And when we look through this psalm, well, we'll notice that there's a progression here. First, he starts out by telling us, this is not what you do to become happy. This is what you don't do if you actually want to be happy in the Lord. And that's how he starts the psalm. Notice right at the beginning of the psalm, verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. If I was doing hand motions, you would notice that it's a downward progression, right? It would start up here. Who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, stands in the path of sinners, and sits in the seat of a scornful. We see the direction here that he's going here, but before we really talk about that progression, let's go in and kind of look at each step along the way. Let's talk about what this means to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Now, you may not use this in your everyday language, I don't, uh, but to walk in the council is very simple. It's just to match the manner of someone else's life. It is just to begin to be like those around us and to soak it in. And truly, because of that word counsel, you know what that means, that's advice. That's truly to follow their advice. And I, I was just telling my kids the other day, we have five daughters. My wife's here in the front, Leah, and we have five daughters together. And I was dropping the kids off to school, at least four of them. And I was telling them that my mother used to say to me every single day that I would walk out the door to walk to high school, she would say, don't blend in. And then she would go, Matt. I go, I know, don't blend in. 
you know. And the, my, my kids were asking, some of them were asking, well, what does that mean? I said, just don't be like everyone else. And, and right before they get out of the car, I pray for them again, um, before they're heading out into the mission field there, and, and that same prayer. But the point is, is that I don't want them to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. I don't want them to blend in. I don't want them to follow someone else's manner or someone else's advice in life. And we also don't usually refer to non-Christians as the ungodly, the ungodly. And, you know, before I really go any further in kind of discussing this passage with you, I want you to remember something. I already know that God has called us to love every single person that we come in contact with. In the prayer meeting, there's been two prayer meetings before this service. There's a prayer meeting down the hall with some of the leaders. Then obviously there's a prayer meeting room in here. And uh, more than one person was praying that we would love one another, that we would love anybody who comes into this place, that we would love the people we interact with. But one of the things you need to realize about those who do not know Christ is that the Bible calls them ungodly. And the reason it calls them ungodly is very simply is there's only two sets of people in the world. Those who actually are friendly to God and his scriptures and those who are not. Those who are going to have their home in heaven and those who will not. And so as a result, when we talk about the ungodly, we have to remember that what that means is there really are wicked people in this world. And I don't care if they're 95 little old grandma, if she does not have Jesus Christ in her heart and mind, she is just as wicked as Goliath the Philistine. That doesn't matter. And so the point is to realize that this psalm is to wake us up and make us realize that we live in a world where people are either godly or they're ungodly. And we, we are going to be influenced, and we are going to influence others around us. Psalm 10, verse 4, mentions this about the ungodly and really describes what is happening inside of them. It says, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Someone can talk about God, but if they are wicked and they have not bowed to Jesus Christ as their Savior, then they have a proud countenance. They do not seek God and God is in none of their thoughts. Counsel from the ungodly. Um, all throughout the scriptures, for some reason, God's people always begin to veer off in the wrong direction. And they begin to go after the counsel that is more attractive to their ears. And as you know, the Israelites, all through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all through the Old Testament, they were constantly being taken captive. And instead of crying out to the Lord, what did they do? They would cry out sometimes to their ex-enemies to save them. In Isaiah chapter 30, when being overtaken by the Assyrians, God's people did not call God for counsel. They conspired together and they decided to cry out to Egypt to defend them from the Assyrians. That was their, their move. And this is how God responded to them. He said, woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh, of all people, 
and do trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame, and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. God was really jolting his people and reminding them, if you decide to take counsel from the ungodly and even from your own enemies, there's a price to be paid as a result. And so we today obviously can, can relate because we know that everyone we interact with has an opinion, right? Everybody. I mean, even us in, the, in this room right now, we're probably not, not going to line up on everything, right? I'll take a quick guess. My goodness, look at the candidates in the presidential election. Oh, you know, it's pretty rough. The thing about it is every one of those opinions can turn into counsel towards someone else. You know, that can be counsel in someone else's life. And, um, you know, truly it's completely subjective oftentimes. And there's no authority behind it because it is not the word of God. And it is not the Lord himself. And so often it's not appearing hurtful, right? But it is detracting away from God's word. It's detracting away from God's wisdom. And so that shows us and reminds us the danger of being in that place where we are walking in the counsel of the ungodly. Now let's look at the rest of the verse there. It says, nor stands in the path of sinners. Now standing in the path of sinners to me sounds uh, relatively minor. You know, standing in someone's path Oh, excuse me, pardon me. No, I'm just kind of prancing by. But the English language uh, fails us a bit because it doesn't mean just to stand there in the path of a sinner, but it actually means to remain there, to abide there. And, and in some instances in the Hebrew, it's all just to live there, almost to make it your encampment, if you will. And so this idea of standing in the path of sinners means that we're beginning to really enculturate ourselves and make ourselves at home a little bit with a different place or a different crowd. And that path, that word for path, standing in their path, is actually means more than one thing. It's like a road, but also means a way, a way and a manner of life. And so you're beginning to really kind of bond, whether you want to or not, with those around you. The idea of, of ungodly versus sinners ungodly are labeled as wicked because of their position against God sinners are called sinners in this scripture because they are guilty they are offenders and they are busy at doing things that go directly against God's will so you're at that place where you are remaining and abiding in the path of the sinner now where we stand is an indication of where we want to go and who we want to identify with. If I, you know, I almost wanted to keep the teenagers in here because I feel so strongly you know, about this message of if wherever you stand at school tells me where, who you want to identify with and where you want to go, at least for the day. You know? This word to stand and abide is used many places in the Bible, but when I was studying, I was looking in Genesis chapter 18. And... This is where Abraham was visited one day. His wife was in the tent. He was in the encampment, and he was visited by two angels. And the third angel was actually the Lord himself. It was actually, we believe, Christ appearing, a, a pre-incarnate 
appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is called a Christophany. So the Lord himself comes and visits him with these two angels in that place. And what happens here is very interesting. We're going to see in, the, in, a, in just a couple days, we're going to see how Abraham stands, and we're going to see how his nephew Lot stands in his situation. What happens is Abraham is stood there in the presence of these angels who actually came to him to tell him, listen, you're going to have a baby. And of course, he's a very old man, and his wife was a very old lady, and she laughed through the tent and was sort of rebuked by one of the angels. Why did she laugh? But the other reason that they were there was that the very next day, two of these angels were going to head off to a neighboring city called Sodom. Anybody know the city, Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, well, what, what do you think they were going to do over there? They were going to destroy the city. So in this situation, Abraham was standing in his little camp. In fact, he made them some lunch or dinner, actually served them. And he stood there in the presence of these angels and the Lord himself. He served them a meal in the shade of the trees there of his encampment. And after those two angels departed towards Sodom, the angels took off. But you know what the Bible says? It says that Abraham remained standing in the presence of the Lord. Same word in the Hebrew. He remained standing in the presence of the Lord. He didn't walk off towards Sodom like his nephew Lot did. Then those same two angels that visited Abraham delivered Lot out of the city of Sodom. Remember, Lot was a man who loved God and obeyed God and he knew God. But the problem was he entered Sodom and guess what? He changed dramatically. His wife, himself, his two daughters, his two sons-in-law would not even leave the city when they were told that destruction was coming upon Sodom. They thought that their father-in-law was joking. That's how godly of a man, I guess, they thought he was. They thought it was a big joke. And so what happened was, at that place, those angels literally had to grab Lot and his wife and their two daughters by the hands. Imagine two different angels with one adult on each side of them and led them right out of that city there. But in the middle of all of that, you know what the angels said to them? They said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you or stand anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. And they were warning them, do not stand here. Do not stay here. Exact same word. But you know what Lot said? Lot said, you know, you're telling me to go to the mountains. I'm a city boy. I'm afraid to go to the mountains. I might get in trouble up there in the mountains. Literally, he said this, just pathetic. And he ended up going off to another little city to live in, a sinful city at that. But in that place, he also was warned not to stand. And then finally... The next morning, in that far distance where Abraham lived, Abraham came out of his tent, and guess what he saw in the distance? He saw the smoke rising from that city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's more than one city, the two cities there. And the first thing that Abraham did, the Bible says this, is that he returned to the place where he stood before the Lord just the day prior. And why did he do that? Because he was a man of intercession. He was a man of prayer. He wanted to go back to the place where God met him in that place. 
When you compare Abraham and Lot, you see one man stood in the path of sinners, and he made his home there, while Abraham, out in the middle of nowhere, ministered to angels and Jesus himself. You tell me today, which one would you rather be? It's so simple, isn't it? It's not that simple in our world, though. But there is a price and there is a cost to standing in the way of sinners. Look at the rest of the verse. The progression goes down a little further. Sitting in the seat of scoffers, nor sits in the seat of the scornful here. Now, to sit in the seat is obvious, right? This is to really make this your dwelling place, have company, kick back, watch the Super Bowl together, and enjoy. You know, that is sitting together in a group, and it is, it is like a little assembly is how it how kind of comes across in the original language. The scornful basically are the mockers, uh, those who mock, mockingly despise anything sacred or pious. Uh, and you know who these people are because they don't have to say it with their lips sometimes in the workplace or, or in school, and you'll know where they stand about these issues because they are very mocking towards anything that appears to be religious, and so they try to be irreligious and, and stand outside of anything that would, would give any kind of respect or glory to God. Well, it, the scoffer is described in Proverbs 21 it says, a proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name. He acts with arrogant pride. I think we all know God is not impressed or intimidated um, by a mocker, and, and you shouldn't be either, really. You have Christ in you. And so uh, Proverbs 24, 8 reminds us how God sees the mocker. It says, he who plots to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of foolishness is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to men. Again, when I see my young daughters beginning to grow up, and I see those, they come home and they tell me, so-and-so's an atheist, and I'm looking at my fourth grader, I'm looking at my fifth grader. This is not even my eighth grader saying this. So-and-so's an atheist, and they don't want to hear about God. And I'm just going, I can't even believe it. Now, I want those daughters to love those people because that's what all of us were, right? We were, were no better. That's not the issue here. But you do need to realize that there is a great danger in deciding that you're going to compromise and you're going to accept someone so much where you're not just accepting that person, but you're actually beginning to accept what they stand for, what they believe, and how they've decided to distract themselves away from the conviction in their own heart of having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's very important to be able to delineate the difference in that situation. The downward slippery spiral is obvious. Right? What did we start? We started with walking. And then we went to standing. And then we go to sitting. And then if you, you look at who the folks, how they're described, you go from being in the council of the ungodly, the path of the sinners, and then the seat of the scoffers. And it is a downward spiral, but I want you to notice this. It's a little more subtle than just calling someone a name. It has more to do with how you interact with the individuals or how our loved ones interact with the individuals. This is what's happening on the inside. At first, it's affecting the thinking 
When you're walking in the counsel of someone else, it's affecting your thinking. But when you're standing in the path of sinners, it's affecting your behavior, your behaving. It's beginning to actually come out in expression. And then lastly, when you're sitting in the seat of scoffers, it is your belonging and that that is your identity now. Some of the different folks in um, our culture today who are struggling the very most, I think of those who Christ wants to save out of the life of homosexuality, they're struggling more with an identity than they are just with the sin of sexual sin because their identity is, I am who I am. But you know what? They don't realize that Christ loves them right where they're at and he is in the business of changing lives from the inside out. And he wants to do that in their lives and so it's very dangerous when we get to the last place where we think we belong and now this is our identity and we don't realize that we're actually, our identity is to be a child of God. And that is what God has called us to. As we progress, move on in the scriptures to verse 2, and let's see how, the, how we are actually blessed. Not by what we don't do, but by what we do do. Blessed, blessed is the man or woman who does this, who delights. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Verse 2, to delight after something is simply to desire it and to long for it and take pleasure in it. You know, I use these, these words because I don't think we're so flowery, especially us guys. We, we say, um, I love football. I like football. We don't say, I take great pleasure in football. <laughs> right? And, and we don't talk that way about things. You know, it just doesn't happen. Or, you know, I like this guy. Or, no, I take great pleasure in the fine company of my compadre. No, <laughs> we don't talk that way. You know, we just, just kind of say the words, but the truth is we take pleasure in these things, and uh, we don't express it that way, but, you know, you, it's amazing what people take pleasure in. I don't care if it's your, you know, your, your mocha from Starbucks or your video games or your giant truck or, or whatever you drive or your motorcycle. You take great pleasure in it, and, and you just don't describe it so flowery, you know, like I am right now. But the truth is, is that this is talking about delighting in the law of the Lord to just have this incredible crush on God's word and to take pleasure in it and to love it and to be able to say it with that kind of enthusiasm. You know, I, I think that we all have our pleasures, but we don't really call them our pleasures, right? Um, we just don't do that. But the fact is we have them. And if we made you all stand up and give them, you'd all turn three shades of red because you wouldn't want to tell us your favorite cookie. But it's a pleasure for you. And, it, and everybody has this in our lives. Jesus spoke of our love for things. We have a natural love for things. He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you're saying it with me. You know that is the case. We know that all of us has a treasure, but for some reason it is difficult for us to transfer such enthusiasm to God's word. But it is to be treasured. The way we treasure these things in our lives where we're tempted to put great emphasis about 
uh, physical things in our lives or perhaps even worldly relationships that are not bad things. They just we don't tend to transfer into that great pleasure in God's word. The psalmist of 119, 119 found a lasting and fulfilling pleasure in God's word. He was not embarrassed about it. You know, the culture in uh, King David's day, I believe it was Ezra that probably wrote Psalm 19, but the psalmist, the culture was not so uh, manly. It was a a lot more uh, flowery in expression, at least as we see amongst the poets especially, and they say what they mean. He says, I delight in your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. I will delight myself in your commandments. I delight in your law. Tell me, any wives here who their husband said delight four times in one paragraph? Doesn't happen. But that is the kind of delight we are to have for God and his word. We are to be lit up by God's word. What did he delight in? He takes pleasure in the law of the Lord. And what is the law of the Lord? That is all the counsel we have from God's word. That's what that is. That's referring to the entire revealed scripture that we have from God. That is the law of the Lord. You know, I think that all of us would like to be great. We'd like to be great. Some of us have probably even lost touch with what it would ever mean to be great and lost the desire for greatness. But how many things or people are truly great in this life? Hmm, not too many. Not too many things are truly great in this life, but Psalm 111 tells us what's great. It says, the works of the Lord are great. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. You know, God saves people that you and I would just think there's no reason for you to save this person God. If you could just pass by the door and go to the next one, don't even bother going in this door. But God decides to save whoever he wants to save. He has compassion upon anyone he wants to have compassion upon. And when we see this, we realize that the works of God are great. And and that's right from the scripture. What he has done is great and it's studied by all who have pleasure in them. The Christian doesn't find greatness in the world. He finds greatness in his Bible. He sees it in the Bible. He delights in the law of the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that I don't believe in miracles, the spectacular, all the spiritual gifts, but you know what? My eyes are very subjective at times, and I need to open my Bible and go to the Bible and know that this is true, this is right. This is greatness right here. That's something I can delight in. This is something, regardless of where I'm at on the emotional spectrum, God's word is alive. I just have to figure out a way to get it in me. I hope I haven't given this illustration here, but I've given it to many. I love the Gatorade commercial where all those people are sweating in different colors. Have you seen it? (laughs) Purple, green, blue, you know, all the different colors. They're sweating in in these colors, and it's obviously because they drink Gatorade. So I'm yet to see anybody in the NBA sweating purple, but um, maybe it's in the future. So, but anyways, the tagline of the commercial is, is it in you? Is it in you? Great marketing scheme. 
because that's what needs to happen. How are you going to get God's word in you? You have to get it in. I don't care if you get it through a podcast. I don't care if you have your eight-year-old read it to you. I don't care if you read it yourself. Just figure out a way to get God's word inside of you. And if you're wondering why you're not delighting in his word, it's because it's not in you. And you need to get it in you. Usually the reason why we don't do well in this area is because we refuse to follow directions. Get God's word in you. It's not optional. We need it in our life. It is something that we are to delight in. This whole psalm is based upon you avoiding the, uncom- the company of the ungodly and getting God's word inside of you so that you can do what God has called you to do and have the power to do it. He meditates is the other thing he does. He delights in God's word, but he also meditates in God's word. It says, and in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, to meditate is to contemplate. It is to muse. It is to consider. It is, this, it is to think deeply about something, not just to let it go. The way some people think about that truck that they're going to one day buy, they got it all figured out. They went online and they, they, they figured out exactly what engine, exactly what interior, exactly what color. They have meditated upon their auto selection. But when it comes to God's word, we are to take it and we're to bring it inside of our heart. God gave this instruction all the way back to jo- Joshua after the death of Moses. He said, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. God's word is to be meditated upon. Why? Because it's good, pure, and holy, and because it changes us, because it is alive. It is God's word, and it will never die. It's eternal. It is alive, and it does a work inside of us. You say, well, how in the world do I meditate? Well, you don't, you don't have to do yoga or anything like that. So just relax. We had some folks at a past, I had some interactions in the past where people were so afraid that if they meditated, they would be welcoming evil spirits in, you know, to their life. And Basically, it's very simple. It is just to eliminate the distractions. Eliminate the distractions. You are capable of eliminating the distractions. And, and get to a place where you can read to understand. Read the Bible to understand the Bible. Don't read the Bible to finish the Bible. Read the Bible to understand the Bible. So find the translation you need. Get out the NIV, get out the New Living, get out the NASB, the King James, the ESV, whatever. As long as your pastors here like it, just read it. Go for it. And read it to understand it. And then the, this is the part of the meditation where it goes from the page to the heart is you're asking the Lord to help you to apply it on a personal level. How am I going to do God's word? And of course, all of this is done in prayer. We're called to meditate on God's word. If we do this, we're going to be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, verse 3. A tree planted by the rivers of water. For me, what stands out is that word planted. You know, I couldn't plant myself anywhere if I tried. I can't do it, nor can a tree. 
You look at a tree that is deeply planted and you realize that that tree did nothing (laughs) to be able to be planted where it's planted. And God is the one who plants us there as we obey his word. And he's the one who grows through us. There's a lot packed in this idea of, of a tree planted by the rivers of water. First, it's fruitful. It's fruitful. That's what we see. It brings forth fruit in its season, it says. So there's going to be fruit coming out of your life. That's one of the blessings. And guess what? Other people can see that you're fruitful. And so don't be upset if you're not fruitful, fruitful and people realize that you're not fruitful. So that could actually be seen by others in your life. Fruit should actually come out of your life. And so when someone says, I don't see any fruit, don't say, don't judge me. Just say, I'm working on that. I'm working on that. I want fruit in my life. I want that to come out in my life. Also, this tree is renewed. It says that its leaves shall not wither. Every Christian is evergreen if they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They don't wither. It just keeps keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. And this is because of the Holy Spirit's work within us. And we're to cry out daily to the Lord, fresh me, fill, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I need to be filled with you. I don't need to be filled with me. I need to be filled with you. So we're seeking that every day. Also, this tree is favored. It's favored. Um, it says, whatever he or she does shall prosper. Whatever this person does prospers because they're favored by God. You know, Jesus spoke about how we're to be connected to him and and we're supposed to bear much fruit. We're supposed to find our life in him. Jesus said in John 15, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. That's what Jesus wants to do. Notice, Nothing about this passage and all these blessings that come to this tree have anything to do with trials or hardship or any of that. And you might be thinking today, wait a second, I am trusting God's word. And you know what? I don't feel like that tree. But I want you to know today, no trial will ever keep you from being fruitful. No trial will ever keep you from being renewed. And no trial will ever keep you from being favored by God. You see, if you are a tree planted by the rivers of water, then you know no matter what, I don't care what happens in this life, you will be fruitful, you will be renewed, and you will be favored by God, and God is going to take care of you all the way to the end. But, here's the bummer, the ungodly, verse 4, are not so. I think this should be a new little saying for you, just in your family, not to put people down who don't know the Lord, but, you know, to refer to the ungodly as, they're not so. They're not so. It looks like they have it all at times, but the Bible says here, the ungodly are not so. Those three words, are not so, take all the prior blessings of Psalm 1 and say, these do not belong to the ungodly. All the direction that's there do not belong to the ungodly. So don't skip the are not so. And realize that you may think it's okay to begin to slip backwards. You may think, oh man, 
the old life was so much easier. It's just easier to go with the flow. I just miss this. I miss that from the old life and realize that all the blessings, they're not so. They're not so. At the beginning of Psalm 1, we see that that godly person does not do, they don't do the, the walking, the standing or sitting there. They don't fall in to that crowd. But notice as we move on, we're reading here that the ungodly don't get to do what we get to do. You see the, how it's the opposite now. Now it's showing us that now we're not going along with them, and now they don't get to do what we do as Christians either. It says it, it's basically showing the difference and contrasting between us and them. First of all, all the prior blessings of the righteous are nullified. They're canceled out. They're not so. But next, notice, instead, they're like chaff, which the wind drives away. Just gone. Just gone in, a, in an instant. You know what chaff is. Chaff is that husk surrounding any kind of seed. We think of it as wheat usually. But that little husk is worthless. And it's, it's a sad representation of what it's like not to know God. It is to be tasteless. It is to be worthless. And perhaps most sobering, it is to be very flammable as well. And, and I don't want to be chaff at all. And I don't want anybody to be chaff in my life. So the ungodly are not so, but, but next we notice here that they're not going to get to stand in the judgment. See, they, they don't get the blessings, but they also don't get to stand in the judgment in verse 5. We know now from studying the New Testament that this is the final judgment. That's what's being referred to. Now that we have the New Testament, we know it's referring to the great white throne judgment. Uh, John the Baptist spoke of this judgment, really as a progressive judgment, and he spoke of the, this because he was coming on the scene to introduce the Lord Jesus Christ, and there was a coming judgment for those who refused to repent, and there was a coming judgment for those who rejected God and his son Jesus Christ. And this is the phrase where John lays this out from Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And focus on this now, what John says. He says, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He gives a picture of this, this moment in the harvest process where he is fanning. The wheat is dropping to the ground, but where is the chaff going? It is, as he fans, it's just going into the air. The wind is catching it, and it's getting blown away, and the wheat is getting trapped here. Godly, God, God's people are safe with him and valued by him, and the chaff is gone because they refuse to repent. And John the Baptist was saying, Christ is coming. You better repent now. You're not going to have a second chance. Another John in the Bible, one of Jesus' disciples, received a vision from God about this final judgment for those who refuse to repent and reject Jesus as their Savior. He shared it with us in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And here we have a whole nother side of it. 
where John, the disciple, is explaining, listen, there's a judgment, and I'm going to tell you about it by the Holy Spirit. He says, then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that, which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We can read Psalm 1 and go, so they won't stand in the judgment. Okay, this is a big deal, and it should break our hearts. It should break our hearts for those who will not stand in the judgment, but it should also send a message to us not to be defiled by the world and realize that judgment is real and judgment is coming, and without Having Christ as your Savior and Lord, judgment is sure. And so we see the sobriety. This is the blessing of, you know, being a Christian is to avoid any kind of judgment like this. Thirdly, here's what the ungodly do not get to do. They don't get the blessings. They don't stand in the judgment. And then lastly, you notice, it says, shall not join the congregation of the righteous shall not join. Are you okay being called righteous today? You're not raising your hands. You know why? It's hard to admit that you're considered righteous. Most of us don't, oh, I'm not righteous, you know. I'm not righteous. But it's the Lord Jesus Christ's righteousness is placed upon us because the innocent paid the price for the guilty. We're the guilty. He's the innocent. But why do we get to wear a white gown? Because he's placed his white gown upon us. We've been washed by his blood. We are called righteous because it is the righteousness of Christ that is attributed to us because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're called righteous. How many of you are glad you're righteous? That's much better. Uh, the thing about it is, is that the ungodly shall not join the congregation of the righteous. You know, we're in a congregation today, and you might be here today, you do not know Jesus Christ. You might be in this room right now, but you are not in the congregation of the righteous. And you need to realize that you cannot be righteous until you repent of your sins and give your life to Jesus Christ and accept him as your Savior. Allow him to take his sin, your sin, and wash it from you. And you have to do that in order to have a relationship with God and then actually enter in and join the congregation of the righteous. Christians are not better. Christians are forgiven, right? Mm -hmm. In this life, the godly and the ungodly get mixed up all the time, but not so in the next life. I'm not going to have to tell my daughters, don't blend in in eternity, right? No problem at all. I'm saying this because we know that Jesus was a friend of sinners, but he did not compromise. He remained pure and holy, 
He was simply seeking and saving the lost. He was not being conformed or defiled by them. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He was not a partner of sinners. He was a friend of sinners, and there's a big difference. As a Christian who risked being defiled by the world, why would you hang out with people who are ungodly in this life when they're not going to be able to hang out with you in the next life? Why would you do that? Because they're never going to have a place in the congregation of the righteous. So we do not congregate with the ungodly in partnership, but we reach out to them as a friend and we love them so that they can one day come into relationship with Christ. That is our purpose. At the end of this psalm, it's kind of summed up as everyone's final end, I would call it. And it's in verse 6. It says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Whenever I see this, I kind of think of a husband or wife and how maybe you're somewhere with your spouse and there's a lot of people there and you're watching your spouse unlike anyone else is watching your spouse and you think you know more about what your spouse is experiencing than anyone else in the room, even though you hardly even got to talk to your spouse in that place. How many of you can relate? I'm hoping that other people don't know your spouse better than you. (laughs) That's my point. But the idea is that you can look and know her, or, or as a gal, you can know him, and that's what this is. It says the Lord knows the way of the righteous. It's a picture of intimacy. That's one part of it. The other part of it is it's a, it's a promise of his presence. He knows your way because he is leading your way. He is providing your way. He's powering your way. He knows the way of the righteous. So he is there in an intimate fashion. And then, of course, he is present, and that is a promise he has to us. Contrast that with the rest of the verse where it says, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The way of the ungodly shall perish. There are two ways, the way of the righteous and the way of the godly. Jesus spoke about this dynamic all the time, very powerfully. Matthew 7, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. Jesus said there's a way. And we know that he also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So we realize that very few find that way. And it is our job to represent the love of Christ to others, but it is also our job in discipling one another not to be defiled by the world, not to compromise at all. As I close, I just want to make a few comments. You know, some of us can be going through life and we're searching for happiness in a lot of different directions. And if that's not you, then it's someone you know, right? They're searching for happiness every which direction in their life. And you could be asking yourself in the middle of that what it is you need to do to be happy. 
But maybe instead what you need to ask yourself is, what or who do I need to avoid right now in my life? That is a real problem that we have. What do I need to cut off in order to actually be delighting in the Lord? 2 Corinthians 6.14, I'm going to read it in the New Living just because we hear it so often. It says, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a part, partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? Now you might say, I can't shake the sin in my life. Have you ever heard that? You ever felt that way? Most of us had. I cannot shake the sin in my life. And to be an encouraging friend, I'll say to you, no, you can't. No, you can't. can't shake your sin. Only God can do that in your life. But you have to be a willing participant and you have to follow the example of Scripture in Psalm 119. The reason people fail in this area in the Christian life is because they don't follow instructions. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Truly going to God's word and truly doing God's word always brings freedom by the Holy Spirit. Always. It always works. Some of you are living what I would call, it's a little bit different. It's just like a general, dreary Christian life. I know those sound like, you know, they don't go together, dreary and Christian, but I've been to church all my life, and I've seen it a lot of places. And um, they're leading the dreary Christian life. You're not openly complaining, but you've come to the conclusion that life is tough, so you endure it. Just endure it there. But you're not in touch with the words and the promises of Jesus if that is your mindset. And it's important for you to know that he wants you to be filled with joy. I don't mean plastic smile joy. I mean real joy on the inside coming through your life. We can't be so generally subjective about this life. We're very subjective. And it must be revealed to us in concrete terms that our, you know, we have our, our stubborn way about us to where we're not submitting to Jesus' gentle but persistent way of speaking to us. He has a gentle but persistent way of dealing with us. And we need to remember to return to God's word. We need to come back to it and we need to read it like it's the first time we ever read it again and do it and actually walk it out. The homework is for you to read John 15 through 17, every verse of it. <laughs> and Jesus will speak to you again, and fill you with his presence. When you see what Jesus said, you, you have to do, to not be blessed by reading John 15 through 17 is to, to say to Jesus, you won't do what you said you would do in these scriptures. He will do what he said he will do in John 15 through 17 for us here in this room today. And you will know that God's peace will return. He will freshly fill you with, your, with his Holy Spirit at that place, right before I pray, know the source of your joy. You have a source of joy. 
And I have it in Psalm 1611. Say this with the psalmist. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. Let's stand. The guys are going to come up and we're going to keep worshiping the Lord in a moment. But let's pray together. Lord, we're so glad that you went out of your way to care about our happiness. Lord, how happy we could be as we trust you. How happy we could be as we allow your word to wash us once again. And Lord, perhaps for some of us this seems so far away, the idea of walking in true happiness. And Lord, we pray that you would just pour your Holy Spirit about each one of us today. Wash away that doubt. Lord, you know that we are often faithless. And we pray that you would wash any doubt away and rekindle our heart and desire for you, for your word. Help us to know that you are right here with us, Lord, we pray. Lord, minister to each one and meet each one at their point of need, I pray. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.